The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 178 is something like, what would an ethics that really acknowledges that people are determined be like, or maybe, is society on an irreversible trajectory of degeneration? And we read Friedrich Nietzsche's 1888 book, Twilight of the Idols. For more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, more last man than overman in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwan in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, intoxicated at 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday in Middleton, Wisconsin. Is there a story behind that, Dylan? <laughs> Are we supposed to be intoxicated? Okay, metaphorically. The, the best life is intoxicated, right? Mm. We should live as intoxicated beings. Are we in a frenzy of creative activity here? A frenzy? That's why we're doing it earlier in the day. Seth, are you in a frenzy in a way you would not yeah. be if you did it at night? <laughs> well, I have more potential. I have frenzied energy, I suppose, than I would from 9.30 to 12.30 in the morning. It seems like we should like insult each other or something to get our juices flowing. It seems like intensity should come but out I, of I say, I take issue indignation. with your question. How about that? <laughs> you focused on like one little thing from the whole reading, the determinism thing. Why not just like something like, is morality good for us or something like that? Well, let's give our... So as introductory words, those were two things that I thought were unique to this reading. This is one of his last readings. He wrote it in just over a week in the late summer of 1888. So some people take it as a good overall summary of his philosophy. And we do have a lot of the same themes. You know, morality is despisure of life and what is our proper connection to the instincts, things like that, that we've seen in many of his other works that we've already talked about in other podcasts. The two themes that I articulated from my questions were things that I thought were unique to this work, which are the emphasis on Freedom of the will is an illusion. And so given that he is very much in favor of values, he can't just say, choose life or something. Like it can't be a matter of choice. So trying to articulate his ethical views as compatible with determinism seemed like an interesting question to me. And then correspondingly, since a good chunk of this is a critique of society and a critique of German society. So he's sort of taking for granted his past genealogical analysis of morality as coming out of resentment and coming out of a history of slaves reversing more natural traditional morality. And so they revere, they've pronounced good what was in fact just weakness. So this is all kind of assumed. And now he's moving forward. And I know he did this in past works we read before, but maybe we didn't emphasize this as much. And so I was looking for this this time, I was trying to think about what would Nietzsche be like as a critique of today's society, of the social justice warrior stuff and the Trumpism and all this. Would he be an Andrew Sullivan? Would he be a, there are many other choices one could focus on, you know, who would be an analog of Nietzsche, you know, whereas previously I felt like a really important thing for us. And, and I, in fact, just did this yesterday. Folks can listen on Christmas Day or something. This uh, episode of this other podcast, The Pansycast, will be coming out where I appeared as one of four people giving a general introduction to Nietzsche. And as with our earlier episodes here on that, my emphasis was 
Nietzsche is not a Nazi. You should give him the most sympathetic possible reading and apply what seems useful to your life and sort of discard the rest and just ignore or forgive his obvious sexism and the things that sound racist and all that stuff. Well, I was kind of just as a change of pace, since this is like the sixth time we've dealt with Nietzsche, I was really trying to not just absorb Nietzsche into my own views and try to find, you know, an interpretation of him that I think is uniformly correct, <laughs> that, uh, you know, represents the modern view of morality or values that I actually ascribe to, but actually come face to face with his genuine weirdness, his genuine otherness, and trying to see what he would say about current social political conflict seemed an interesting way of doing that. This is the first time I've read Twilight of the Idols, and he rails, obviously, many times against systematizers, but in a kind of perverse way, Twilight of the Idols kind of brings together all of the things that he's, you know, genealogy of morals, beyond good and evil, Zarathustra, and it's all kind of summarized in the section, History of an Error. So it's exciting that you could read basically a page and a half of Nietzsche and get it highlights what's challenging about Nietzsche, which is he's very attractive when you're 18 to 25-year-old phase where you're looking for snarky quips that you can throw out. There's a reason why he's a favorite of beret-wearing, cigarette-smoking, 20-somethings. But at the same time, this is also a work that highlights how you'd need to have a history or a deep scholarship, not only in his work, but in the history of philosophy, to be able to understand his references and to get, there's layers and layers of meaning. And so it's wonderful in the sense that it kind of highlights all of the joys and pains in the ass, as Mark pointed out, about reading Nietzsche, and that it's shallow, and it's deep, it's profound, it's sexist, it's, <laughs> you know, it's all of the things in one. And so I like the idea of anchoring an understanding of Nietzsche's project, which is in itself would be sort of abhorrent to him, talking about him having a lifetime project. But he himself brings that interpretation to bear in the way that he talks about his previous work and kind of brings it all together in that section, History of an Error. I don't know from a recommendation standpoint if I would tell people to start with this or if this is the place you end up. It reminds me of when we were reading some of the other systematizers like Levinas, like Spinoza, where we were coming to these works that were later in life that were more popularized, that were more intended to kind of synthesize a lot of the other work that they had done. And I wonder if Nietzsche isn't falling into the same pattern. But there's much, much, much in this text to get excited and interested about and to get outraged about as well. Most of what I want to sort of chew on I want to hold off until going through the book some more. The thing that I found myself coming back over and over again to in reading this, which I read a long time ago, is just trying to really understand this sort of ecstatic, energized notion of becoming and what that points towards. This was has always been sort of the frustrating part about Nietzsche to me, but that's the part I found myself most thinking about. And the second thing to me was unpacking his uh, criticism of modernity, particularly the reason equals virtue equals happiness equation, the great Socratic equation, and how that is still true with us and how the things that infect morality and infect religion also ultimately really infect reason itself from his point of view and chew on that a little bit. 
I guess I should say that I've been very influenced by Nietzsche's critique of morality. I think of him as the defense attorney for instincts or instinct. The first really great defense attorney for instinct before the advent of Freud, who's really a follow-up on that. And I think largely before Nietzsche, the instincts simply have a bad rap. So the way this all starts out is Nietzsche's talk of the pessimism of philosophers and the negative attitude they take towards life, which is to say the negative attitude they take towards instinct. Our impulses are just a problem. They're to be solved by reason or the philosophical use of reasoning that Socrates called dialectic. And the way to become happy is just to become virtuous, which means using our reason to keep our instincts from overrunning us. I think, you know, despite all that we, the many times we visited Nietzsche, it's still a really radical and interesting critique, this idea, you know, this disagreement that Nietzsche has with that, this willingness to go so far as he does in the first section, the problem of Socrates, to say that happiness equals instinct. So I think, you know, Seth mentioned the way that Nietzsche is so appealing to adolescents. And I think with good reason, because adolescents are sort of waking up to the hypocrisy of adults and the ways in which they talk the talk of morality, the ways in which morality actually incorporates some of the things that it supposedly opposes, the way it actually incorporates aggression and hate while cloaking itself in the trappings of love and so on. So anyone who's read my political writing knows that the critiques I give are very heavily influenced by Nietzsche, and they represent a skepticism of people's proclamations of being interested in morality and justice, rather than simply continuing a sort of cycle of vengeance and resentment. So that's my interest. Maybe we should read the uh, preface to the book, just because it really uh, sets things off nicely. Maintaining cheerfulness in the midst of a gloomy task, fraught with immeasurable responsibility, is no small feat. And yet, what is needed more than cheerfulness? Nothing succeeds if prankishness has no part in it. Excess strength alone is proof of strength. A revaluation of all values. This question mark so black, so huge, that it casts a shadow over the man who puts it down. Such a destiny of a task compels one to run into the sunlight at every opportunity to shake off a heavy, all-too-heavy seriousness. Every means is proper to do this. Every case is a case of luck, especially war. War has always been the great wisdom of all spirits who have become too introspective, too profound. Even a wound there is the power to heal. A maxim, the origin of which I withhold from scholarly curiosity, has long been my motto, the spirit's increase, vigor grows through a wound. So what are we doing here? This is his style typically of him is prankish it's going to be a little snarky but we already have right in here a couple of the the very last line of the whole book is make yourself hard <laughs> so the fact that he's talking about war right here this little essay is a great declaration of war and regarding the sounding out of idols this time they're not just the idols of the age but eternal idols which are touched with a hammer as with a tuning fork there are no idols that are older more assured more puffed up and none more hollow so this little analysis that he's doing, you know, what he seems to mean by war is war of words, some sort of really deep analysis of society, of yourself. What do you guys make of this recurrent talk of war throughout here? Is it merely a rhetorical flourish, like I think is pretty clearly indicated here? 
on the one hand, it's a war of words, right? Yeah, against the idols, which are religion and morality and everything associated with them, specifically Christianity, and including science, including basically everything gets, <laughs> gets everything gets ultimately tainted by slave morality and Christian morality, even its opposite, even atheism, actually, a certain form of that. Nietzsche is a big critic of that as simply an expression of a continuation of the nihilism in Christianity. But this warlike I mean, I think, Mark, you maybe you're asking if he's literally an advocate of violence and aggression between human beings, or if we are to think of that spiritually. And we get a lot of that in his section on morality as anti-nature, where clearly he's arguing about war as essential to spirit. So where anti-natural morality condemns the instincts, a healthy morality is dominated by the instinct for life and actually spiritualizes instinct, something he thinks Christianity is incapable of doing. The spiritualization of sensuality he calls love. The spiritualization of hostility he thinks of as agonism, I think, like the ancient Greek agonism, wrestling, or I think of it almost as play, as the the sense in which there's an element of aggression in play. And really the need for struggle, the need for opposition, especially internal opposition, and opposition internal to the psyche. To be fruitful, he says, is to be rich in that internal opposition. And to renounce war is to renounce life. So I think pretty clearly the primary sense in which we're to take that is this spiritual sense. So there's a lot in Nietzsche which sounds jarring. You know, you wonder, is he advocating for the next Napoleon? Does he want to see society taken over by strong, violent men? Or is all of that merely an expression of something spiritual that he thinks we need to preserve in the psyche, even if we're no longer as violent towards each other externally? I kind of want to interpret him that way. But I have a hard time discounting a kind of fetishism he has for destruction. And there's, I think, a way to interpret it as creative destruction that is part of all creative activity. It's hard for me not to take him seriously on that, I'll just use the word again, the fetish of great men and great acts as being the sign of great creativity even if they're nominally appalling, and that he sees great source of becoming in all those things. And to me, adjudicating that in terms of what it would mean in terms of the activity of society and what it would mean to live in such a place and his judgments in those respects, for me, it's hard to tease out because I felt more reading this book than ever before in reading him how much he is reacting to the times or wondering if he isn't in great part reacting against his times, which he probably would admit to that, you know, in his critique of contemporary society, that there's something deeply decadent about it and that he's just feels the a straitjacket of contemporary society that's bad for individuals, bad for the flourishing of human beings. And so there's this kind of overflowing of the sense of conflict as being good because there's so much push against conflict. But I don't know how seriously to take what seemed in a plain way to open the door. You know, there there are points where he, you know, he praises cruelty for cruelty's sake and stuff like that. And I take that all sort of part of the criticism of typical morality and the lying aside creation and destruction as being similar activities. And I guess I just don't know how to take it. If I take it at face value, it seems not dangerous isn't the right word, but it seems unmoored in a way that 
belies his discussion of, you know, his praise of nobility and his praise of being one's own whole self and these kinds of things. So I'm going to point us to number 36 in the first section. Are we immoralists harming virtue? No more than anarchists harm princes. Only because the latter are shot at do they once more sit securely on their thrones. Moral, morality must be shot at. So my interpretation of his notion of war and his veneration of great figures that, I'll just say, challenge the orthodoxy, right, is it's a question of responsibility. So Nietzsche says several times throughout this text and other places that you have to be willing to acknowledge what and who you are and not pass that responsibility off to a third party. So it's Christianity says, oh, you're a sinner, and then wants you to apologize for that sin to this authority, this God. And he's saying, no, you have to embrace and acknowledge the parts of you that are uncomfortable to think about and uncomfortable to embrace. And I think, in a certain sense, the great man theory that he advocates, the noble virtues, are about that same dynamic playing out at the societal level versus the individual level. But one of the key messages here is that, look, if your virtue is never tested, then you have no real virtue at all. And so for me, the concept of war, at least in this text, is related to the notion of the testing of virtue, whether it be an individual looking at themselves with that kind of immoralist view, or if it's the individual, he doesn't have a concept of movements per se, but the individual challenging society and shooting at the virtues of society or the morality of society. Yeah, so he elaborates on the need for opposition. You know, this idea of political princes staying on their thrones only by way of war. So again, the section on anti-natural morality, section three, just want to read a little bit from that. Almost every party understands how it is in the interest of its own self-preservation that the opposition should not lose all strength. The same is true of power politics. Skipping down a little bit, our attitude to the internal enemy is no different. Here too, we have spiritualized hostility. Here too, we come to appreciate its value. The price of fruitfulness is to be rich in internal opposition. One remains young only as long as the soul does not stretch itself and desire peace. Nothing has become more alien to us than the desideratum of former times, peace of soul, the Christian desideratum. There's nothing we envy less than the moralistic cow and the fat happiness of the good conscience. One has renounced the great life when one renounces war. So again, I'm pointing back to the sense in which the real import here is the spiritualization of instincts, both sensual and hostile, or what we might call sublimation. I think that there's enough in Nietzsche to suggest that's what he's really interested in. And if you think about the way this book ends, it doesn't end with Napoleon. It ends with Goethe and then him. He wants to be the next Goethe. He's the next great man in this line. And what he's doing is the the war really is a question of reinvigorating instinct, not by bringing back the blonde beast or the morality of breeding or all the terrible things that happened before the advent of society and morality put a check on those things, but reincorporating instinct or the Dionysian, you might say, in some sort of constructive way, reincorporating spiritualized instinct, not just raw instinct that does what it wants. And there's lots of places in, in here where he warns you against thinking that he's just calling for laissez-aller, do what you want, just follow your instincts completely. Your instincts, they have to be the right instincts. That's actually really good, Wes. And this question of the spiritualization of instincts and the kinds of instincts they are, and that they're not the raw instincts, 
one of the things I was making notes to myself about, again, is this question of what is that form of becoming? And I agree, our instincts aren't raw for Nietzsche. I was trying to understand what that refinement meant, what it looked like, and what were its pieces. And I frankly found myself having a hard time finding out what that was other than a kind of pointing to it. And maybe that's all it is, right? But I found it very frustrating in that respect. Yeah, I think the positive part of this is frustrating because we don't get to be geniuses and great men. <laughs> so what's in it for us? You know, if this is a self-help book, if we were to think of this as self-help in some sense, or think of this as having something constructive for us, and we get to the point where he's talking about Napoleon and Goethe and himself, that sort of elitism leaves us out. Is that what you're talking about? It's frustrating or... Well, that, that might be, but you just articulated it in an interesting way to me that what does Nietzsche have to say about all of us as a whole, as opposed to the ones that are great geniuses or could be? Does he have anything to say to all of us at all? Or is his railing against morality and religion and all the rest of it a cry against the tamping down of great genius without really caring about how it works for everybody else? In some ways, he's deeply anti-democratic, and it may be that part of the problem is is that, let's say you just said, okay, yeah, there's a big problem with religion and morality, but at least it keeps the peace, right? On the face of it, he seems to just think that's just terrible, and that that is not worth having either of those things, because they cause great problems for great men, and he would pull the lid off that, and it's not clear to me that he doesn't care about the question of social stability, or he doesn't think that the cost of social stability, that morality and religion have overshot, that it's really all about oppression, and it's, that's true for all the individuals as well as the great men. I just find myself, frankly, just kind of confused on it, about where, where he comes out on it. So just one of the places where he talks about, you know, you can't go back. So what he's not calling for is simply a return to something prior. So in 43 of skirmishes, he says a reversion, a return in any sense, a degree is simply not possible. And then a little farther down, no one is free to be a crab as in no one is free to go backwards. Nothing avails. Uh-huh. One must go forward step by step further into decadence. That is my definition of modern progress. So decadence is progress, but his opposition to progress doesn't mean going backwards to something better that preceded it. It means going forwards through it. One can check this development and thus dam up degeneration, gather it and make it more vehement and sudden. One can do no more. So you can dam it up, but you can't stop the progress, the decadent progress. It's inevitable. So it sounds in many ways like a Marxian critique where it's not that you can simply do away with capitalism at will or that you could skip capitalism if you wanted. Capitalism would be a natural part of the path towards communism. But the question, I think, maybe part of what you're asking, Dylan, is what comes next? Is it just that a society in which most people are sort of subject to slave morality and most people are degenerate and decadent, but it's somehow safe for great men? Or is there something in it for society as a whole? Will it be a social transformation? So I think that Nietzsche is committed in not a trivial way to a notion of class. And he's anti-democratic, not in some abstract theoretical sense, but in the sense in which his concept of class, that the working class or a lower class, whether it be plebs or workers or whatever, 
carry with it a slave morality that by its very nature will overthrow noble values. So he's anti-democratic politically simply because a class of Democrats, a class of the majority, will necessarily bring with it values which overthrow... Well, they undermine freedom, ironically, is ultimately his argument. Liberal institutions undermine freedom. Well, yeah, that's a whole different... I won't say it's a whole different, but to me that he's making a point there about the difference between the struggle to reach a place and then once you reach a place that, Mm -hmm. again, going back to that notion of war, that liberal institutions, while they struggle to implement, are struggling in favor of freedom. But once they're there, they're actually anti-freedom, anti-liberal. I just think that Dylan trying to get back to that point about his political point of view. He's anti-democratic in a very fundamental way. There's a part in here where he says, when I travel abroad, people ask me, who are the great German thinkers? What are the great German books? And he says, Bismarck, right? (laughs) Well, Bismarck represented politically a return to a kind of, I won't say totalitarian, but an authoritarian, centralized German state that was anti-democratic, that was militaristic. And I don't think there's any way to nuance that point of view in him, at least not in this text. Let me read the passage about liberalism that you're referring to. This is uh, 38 in the skirmishes. So the skirmishes is like the whole second half of the book, just for listeners, which are a a bunch of little essays that are kind of one-off you know, sometimes a couple of them are grouped on one theme, but for the most part, they're little kind of blog posts. Uh, my conception of freedom, the value of a thing sometimes does not lie in that which one attains by it, but in what one pays for it, what it costs us. I shall give an example. Liberal institutions cease to be liberal as soon as they are attained. Later on, there are no worse and no more thorough injurers of freedom than liberal institutions. Their effects are known well enough. They undermine the will to power. They level mountain and valley and call that morality. They make men small, cowardly, and hedonistic. Every time it is the herd animal that triumphs with them. Liberalism, in other words, herd animalization. So that's hardly an actual argument, and he doesn't really say anything more about this. He only mentions democracy a couple times in here. Well, in the next section, he mentions democracy directly. So 39, critique of modernity. Our institutions are no good anymore. Once we have lost all the instincts out of which institutions grow, we lose institutions altogether because we are no longer good for them. Democracy has ever been the form of decline in organizing power. And then he says, in order that there may be institutions, there must be a kind of will, instinct, or imperative, which is anti-liberal to the point of malice, the will to tradition, to authority, to responsibility for centuries to come, to the solidarity of chains of generations, forward and backward ad infinitum. So I think pretty clearly the anti-liberal stuff and the anti-democratic stuff are connected, and they're connected to this whole idea of the opposition and struggle, the sense in which that ceases once the institutions are established and the way in which that kind of laxity, that kind of rest is bad for us. It's like not getting any exercise. So I was trying to compare this to Burke. Mm -hmm. You know, Burke is not committed to violent change. In fact, he's really doesn't, you know, thinks that the stability of the current institutions, which are pre-democratic, the ones he's referring to really, is a good thing. At the same time, the fact that power was concentrated in a nobility and the nobility then was actually able to do things, to create things, to care about a legacy in a way that if everything is purely democratic, then get a lot of squabblings. You don't get really amazing things done. You get a, you know, this is what he doesn't really go into. Why does he think that they undermine the will to power? They level 
level mountain and valley and call them morality. So it sounds like he's thinking that the Democratic are immediately going to, you know, as soon as somebody gains a lot of power or money, they will take it from him and distribute it to everybody else. Like they'll do stuff like that. They'll trim the tall stalks of wheat. They'll bring everybody down to size. The examples he gives in this section are libertinism, basically. He says irresponsible living is called freedom. And remember, this whole section is about freedom and what he thinks of as freedom. And he gives specifically the example of marriage, which the whole point of marriage is indissolubility. And the institution, once that's done away with, once you can just get divorced really easily, the institution itself is dissolved. There's no point in it. And he even opposes getting married for the sake of love, because that's not the point. And love fades, but marriage is supposed to be indissoluble. He thinks you could found it on property, the property drive or the sex drive or status or things like that far more stably than you could on love. And I think he's demonstrably empirically right about that. And then he does the same thing with labor, where he sounds like once you start giving labor the right to organize and vote, you make them unhappy with their state and you essentially destroy the institution. That section you talked about a marriage, Wes, there's an analog in there where he says, at some point in the text, he's talking about the English, and he says, you can't be an atheist, but stick with Christian morality. Once you get rid of the idea of God. George Eliot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah, he's got some, there's quite a bit of fantastic invective in here. But with respect to what you were talking about, Mark, this notion just prior to the section you read in section, I believe it's 37, he says, equality as a certain factual increase in similarity which merely finds expression in the theory of equal rights, is an essential feature of decline. The cleavage between man and man, status and status, the plurality of types, the will to be oneself, to stand out, what I call the pathos of distance, that is the characteristic of every strong age. And later on in the book, he says, it shouldn't be everybody is treated equal, it should be everybody's treated as appropriate. He says something like, equality for equals and inequality for unequals. So acknowledging that people are unequal is not a veneration in itself of nobility or the top, this kind of great man theory, but it's a violation against nature, which is kind of what is the central theme of the book in some respects, that instinctually, if you look at nature, if you don't accept a leveling Christian value it's obvious that people are unequal, and we should acknowledge that inequality and address it as such. Some are herd, some are superior, some are leaders, some are warriors, some are not. And the violation comes in trying to ignore that. I like the comparison to the earlier parts, to the overall, you can't ignore the genealogy of something. So you can't think that our current, your current moral intuitions somehow just come from human nature. They come from a specific historical process, and the history of ideas are such that they came from Christianity, and once you take the God piece out of that, then really the rest has to fall. And so that's what he's talking about with these other institutions. So marriage, which, you know, he also, West did not read the most obnoxious part of it, the rationality of marriage that it lay in the husband's sole judicial responsibility, which gave marriage a center of gravity. Well, today it limps on both legs. So in other words, the marriage was founded as something that was not equal. It was not a relationship. Yeah, the woman, the woman has property. Yes, yeah. exactly. But again, the solution is not, oh, it's degenerated. Let's go back to like, no, we've, once the woman's consciousness is raised, once she is like attained full personhood, 
in terms of being treated that way, having the self-consciousness, being a full participant, then we have to somehow move forward. And it's the same with this, this labor question. He says at the end of it, I ask once more, if one wants an end, one must also want the means. If one wants slaves, then one is a fool if one educates them to be masters. So the solution is not that the working class should no longer be educated, I don't think. It's that we've already started this process where education is more widely available, but yet we want to not fall into this trap. The current state, uh, elsewhere he talks about the fact that higher education is more widely available, means higher education is just sort of churning out people that will be a fit for political service. They're, it's about mediocrity. So it's not, we must reassert the inequality of people. It's if we're going this direction, I think at least a profitable interpretation of Nietzsche is that one needs to take these developments and be creative and spin out what should be the next stage. That's right. But he's also pointing out that a kind of freedom is born out of constraint. That mere freedom, lack of constraint is decadent and also sort of antithetical to true becoming. And I think that that points back towards this notion we talked about earlier of there being a kind of deep determinism and contextualization of people. He sees that as something that needs to be acknowledged. And again, the very strength of our freedom comes out of, it's out of opposition, and that's where the energy of it comes from. It's unclear what that means, except in kind of pointing to what the next stage is after you've, as Mark pointed out, that the point is not to go backwards and reinstitute old constraints because they were better for us. It is to understand those, get our new freedom going forward. And I think it's worth emphasizing. So I see the, the sections on where he's going on about my conception of freedom is 38 to 41. And then 41, towards the end of that, he gives us a pretty frank statement that he does not mean the abandonment to instincts. So freedom, which I do not mean, in times like these, abandonment to one's instincts is one calamity more. Our instincts contradict, disturb, destroy each other. I have already defined what is modern as physiological self-contradiction. Rationality in education would require that under iron pressure, at least one of these instinct systems be paralyzed to permit another to gain in power, to become strong, to become master. I think if you want to understand Nietzsche, it's passages like these where there's some more complex psychology going on that's critical. This idea of not having instincts simply conflict, which is what leads to decline, what makes us sick, but somehow harmonizing them, creating a hierarchy of instincts. If you think of him as having good things to say about hierarchy and the pathos of distance and all that stuff, if you read it at a psychological level, even as we lose that in society, to lose that psychologically means we're in big trouble. So this idea of one master instinct system or some hierarchy of instincts, I think, is really important. I want to make sure that we keep in mind here when we're talking about the freedom requiring opposition and all this, is this other, I think earlier when we were discussing in past episodes, freedom, at least as I was taught that Nietzsche believed in it, from Fritjof Bergman was that freedom is identification with an action. So there's this term from Nietzsche as a functions lust, you know, an animal exercising its facilities, being able to really stretch out. That's the feeling of freedom. So it's not pushing against resistance exactly. Here we have in the four great errors, 
Section 2, at the very end, all that is good is instinctive, and hence easy, necessary, uninhibited. Effort is a failing. The god is typically different from the hero. In my language, light feet are the first attribute of divinity. I think it's not that hard to reconcile this idea that it should be easy. Ideally, freedom should be a a pleasant experience, right? With the idea that you'd need the restraint, you you need the restriction. It's the notion of something being itself without it being constrained by being, right? It's that whole notion of, I want to say will to power, but there's another phrase he uses. Yeah, so there's conflict and then there's conflict, right? So he has a lot yeah. in this section on Socrates, well, and then the section of the four great eras. He has a lot to say about the ways in which the conflict between instinct and moralism and rationality can be bad. But we still want some sort of resistance. We still want a warlike soul. We still want conflict of some sort. We just don't want the type of conflict which leads to what he calls the disintegration of the will. And he talks about virtue in the true sense, in his sense, as coming out of instinct, but in a way it's educated instinct. It sounds almost like Aristotelian habituation. It's when the right instinct system has mastery and you're acting out of that. So instead of you having impulses in one direction and you're just forcing yourself to do things, trying to be virtuous, it's easy in the sense it all comes out of instinct. One way that I think about it is being full for anything means going all the way up to the edges, to the borders. So real flourishing would be constantly feeling the constraint that allows you to know that you are operating at your fullest. But there are constraints out there, undeniably there are constraints out there that prevent that flourishing, that are borders of a different sort. True freedom is in the context of that first one, of operating at the limits of one's own flourishing, that you feel those borders, those constraints. And it seems clear that there can be a variety of them. And also, even in the case of bad constraints, he points to the activity of people's freedom in those cases, even though he would acknowledge them as being bad and horrible. In the absence of constraints, you get this decadence, which I still would like to understand a little more fully. I don't completely get it. But the oppression that you have that really destroys the flourishing of human beings is, well, I guess the question is, distinguishing between those borders that come from the limits that we have sort of intrinsically out of our own beings on our own instincts and the ones that are pressured onto us that prevent our flourishing. Are they differences in kind between those constraints or are they just incidental differences? Have you guys read the full quote there from section 38 about freedom and its relationship to war and constraints and all that? You can read some more, yeah. Okay. For what is freedom? That one has the will to assume responsibility for oneself. That one becomes more indifferent to difficulties, hardships, privation, even to life itself. That one is prepared to sacrifice human beings for one's cause, not excluding oneself. Freedom means that the manly instincts which delight in war and victory dominate over other instincts. For example, over those of pleasure. The human being who has become free, and how much more the spirit who has become free, spits 
on the contemptible type of well-being dreamed by shopkeepers, Christians, cows, females, Englishmen, and other Democrats. The free man is a warrior. Again, a fantastic rhetorical flourish by Nietzsche, which is offensive to many. But so, Dylan, I think going back to what you were saying, what I heard you say was this notion that there's a sense in which being under duress, which is to say being exposed to difficulties and hardships and being prepared to encounter the instincts which those things bring up, there's a balance between that exposure and the recognition and encounter with those instincts and also with just pure oppression, right? There's a fine line between, oh, it's cold outside, but I'm not wearing a jacket because I want to experience my inner instincts for self-preservation in the cold. And somebody's beating me with a whip and I'm chained to 16 other men digging a ditch, right? That idea that privation and hardship can be oppressive is part of what's problematic in this romanticizing of exposing yourself to the elements. This is very much of the time where in literature you talk about man against nature and this idea that the great individual can go up against the forces of the world to try to test the limits of human endurance versus kind of societal oppression and the kinds of limitations and challenges that society and other individuals can place on us. I think a great example is just thinking about education or even raising children, right? The worst thing that you can do in either case is provide no constraints and no limits. Well, maybe not. There is a bad, which is providing no constraints and no limits And there's also a bad, which is subjugating them and tyrannizing them. Yeah. And so that's what we're talking about is what's the difference between constraints that are freedom developing and those that are merely tyrannizing. And I think without articulating it really deeply, we would say that those things are true, right? That in fact, the kind of decadence he's talking about, modernity is, is like the decadence of a poorly raised adolescent brat. Right. He certainly doesn't want people to be stunted. So certain ways of whipping them down. He talks about training dogs. This is in the section of the improvers of mankind, I believe. Does anybody think that the dogs are being improved by being squashed down in this way? So that would be a kind of, there's certainly many kinds of suffering that are like that, that do not make one stronger. So I think what's interesting, I mean, in just pivoting off of that is the ways in which his claim is that virtue, right, is the effect rather than the cause of happiness. The four great errors is he's really concerned about the confusion of cause and effect. It's not that virtue is the cause of happiness. It's that actions have their source in a kind of physiology and instinct. They don't have their sources in what we're commanded to do in these thou shalts and thou shalt nots and what we can do to ourselves with reason and philosophical reasoning about morality. They come from a deep place, our actions. And we'd already have to be happy to be doing the right things. And, you know, again, this is the section where he's saying that it's not that the instincts aren't curtailed enough by thou shalts and thou shalt nots that leads people to do bad things. It's that the will or the instinct has simply disintegrated. Then you have to ask what leads to the disintegration of the will. And in the 
sort of narrative that he gives about Socrates, it's as if there's two types of decadence. The one that proceeds, and actually he gives this account also in Morality is Anti-Nature, you begin with these anarchic, unruly passions, what he calls them disastrous and stupid-making, before we get to the point of spiritualizing them. And you can be decadent in the sense that you could just simply be ruled by instinct and ruled by passion in an unconstructive way. And then the decadence that follows on that, the second kind of decadence, is the one that overreacts to them and tries to tyrannize them. It just makes things worse. But then you have to ask the question, how does this all start in the first place? So when Socrates arrives on the scene, the Greek society, he says, is already in decline. You know, he is there offering himself as a cure and offering dialectic as a kind of cure to a decadence that already exists. And of course, he's just fighting decadence with decadence. But then the question is, and I don't think this is something that Nietzsche ever really addresses, where does that decadence come from in the, in the first place? Where does that anarchy of instincts come from in the first place? If virtue follows on happiness instead of the other way around, if it's just all about this sort of fundamental physiology and comportment of the instincts, then how do you educate instincts? You know, how do they decline in the first place, and how do we educate them in the right direction? Yeah, so I want to make two connections to the previous discussions of ethics that we've had. So one is the is-ought distinction. We've said in many, with Hume and others, that just by talking about the way the world is, or talking about what somebody says, or what social convention is, we can't get ethics out of that. Well, but that's what ethics, per se, has been trying to do. That's what morality has been trying to do, is saying, God says this, so do it. They're all things that are imposed upon people, and according to Nietzsche's analysis, they don't actually give us motivation themselves, right? So if we have been thoroughly imbued, or we have this very strong superego that is chanting these moral instructions at us, that is remains something fundamentally foreign, and it sort of crushes the self. Well, what is the self? What would the alternative to be that? Well, the only place we could get motivation, the only place we could get values in the first place is somehow through instinct. And like Wes was just saying, instinct by itself is just a chaotic mess and it's not going to give us what we would really like out of values, but we need to tamp down this overreaction, which I will disagree maybe that Socrates was just making it worse. Like the way that Nietzsche says it is the society was so degenerate at the time that Socrates came along that he was needed when the, right, the first kind of degeneration can be bad enough, the first kind of decadence that you need someone to come down and stamp all over your instincts because they are just out of control. So I would say it's sort of the next dialectical step. <laughs> so Socrates was a step forward, was a progress, even though, as he said, degeneration is a type of progress, decadence is a type of progress. But still, we need to have then the synthesis, though Nietzsche would never use thesis, antithesis, synthesis sort of language, but that is the way I feel like he talks, that the sort of next stage though not something determined by any sort of pre-existent logic, but should incorporate the good elements of the previous stages. So that was the first part, is this connection to the is-ought. The other one is just the connection to virtue ethics, and this is, I think, what we're getting into. And, you know, we've mentioned Aristotle and other folks that I thought a really important passage here was in Morality is Anti-Nature, number six, 
Let us consider how naive it is altogether to say man ought to be such and such. Reality shows us an enchanting wealth of types, the abundance of a lavish play and change of forms, and some wretched loafer of a moralist comments, no man ought to be different. He even knows what man should be like, this wretched bigot and prig. He paints himself on the wall and comments, ecce homo, behold the man. But even when the moralist addresses himself only to the single human being and says to him, you ought to be such and such, he does not cease to make himself ridiculous. The single human being is a piece of fatum from the front and from the rear, one law more, one necessity more for all that is yet to come and to be. To say to him, change yourself, is to demand that everything be changed, even retroactively. And indeed, there have been consistent moralists who wanted man to be different, that is, virtuous. They wanted him to remain in their own image as a prig. To that end, they negated the world. No small madness, no modest kind of immodesty. So that's the challenge that we have to face as virtue ethicists. We can point to individuals and say, wow, that person has a lot of spirit. That person, so Nietzsche does this throughout, but he can't, by making those critiques, be meaning to tell them, choose not to do that. (laughs) It's not in our power to choose not to do that. At the very least, we have to play these Aristotelian tricks on ourselves of habituating ourselves of what could it mean to tamp down a certain set of instincts in favor of another one than to develop some sort of generalized emotional control or, you know, so we could talk about sort of what the art of making oneself better without simply pointing at an ideal and trying to be like that. That would just make you an imitator. That would be, again, something external that would be imposing itself on your individual telos. And Mark, just the way this sort of getting us towards you, what you wanted to talk about near the beginning of the podcast, which we can start doing in the second part, but this sense in which he, in section eight of the four great errors, he basically says no person is responsible for who they are, for what their (laughs) qualities are. They're simply the effect of this kind of web of natural deterministic causes for the whole universe. And he says the fatality of his essence is not to be disentangled from the fatality of all that has been and will be. We are a piece of faithfulness necessary. And then he says something that he repeats this sort of theme, that we actually can't be evaluated in some sense. We can't be held responsible, and we can't be evaluated, because to do that, we would have to evaluate the whole of life by standing outside of it, and that's something we can't do. We'd have to sort of live everyone's life or experience every possible life, stand outside life as a whole, and then be able to render judgment on it in order to develop the moralistic kind of Christian system of values where we could condemn ourselves and condemn our actions. Whereas for Nietzsche, we have to recognize that it's life values through us. And uh, we can't do anything about that. In a way, it's saying that we have to, in some sense, take our guidance from instinct. That's where values come from, not from these sort of external judgments upon instinct. All right, that sounds like a great way to wrap up part one. Come back next week, hear some more, or take control. Don't just wait passively like a degenerate for the next part. <laughs> Become a partially examined life citizen. Pony up your, your cash, show off your, your overflowing generosity, and uh, get the full citizen edition, and you don't even have to hear ads anymore. You don't have to be subjected to those. So the great man makes it rain. Nietzsche actually said that. <laughs> All right, later. <laughs>